Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Adam Wright, CEO and co-founder of Vespine Energy which uses landfill methane to fuel Bitcoin mining, and in doing so, aims to create an economic incentive for landfills to dramatically reduce methane emissions. At MCJ, we've spent some time at the intersection of Bitcoin as an incentive mechanism for halting methane emissions, namely with Crusoe Energy and the work they do with flared waste gas at oil wells. In today's conversation with Adam at Vespine, I was fascinated to learn about the scale of the landfill emissions problem, and how the status quo doesn't really provide them a great economic incentive to do anything about it. I mean, maybe a magical carbon tax could show up someday, or we could fine landfill owners into oblivion until they comply. But, well, we need them. What would we do with all our waste without landfills? Vespine's answer is to provide a carrot rather than a stick. They provide landfill operators with financial upside for the biogas that their sites produce in exchange for Vespine being able to use it. And biogas is an unavoidable byproduct of landfills, and one that's only going to continue to grow over time as long as humans keep producing waste. And then the conversation really took me to a new place. Adam describes Bitcoin mining not as the end-all be-all for Vespine. In fact, he paints a picture of Bitcoin mining as a relatively low-margin business. But what Bitcoin mining is good at is being an immediate economic consumer for this gas that doesn't require facilitating a buyer on the other end, or hooking up a ton of expensive infrastructure and grid connectivity. It essentially bootstraps an energy business with a third-party, logistics-free, known economic model attached. And it's a model that can unlock totally different use cases once it's in place, including EV charging and more. I learned a lot from Adam in this conversation. They're on the early side of building out this business, with their first pilot site in development in California right now, and they'll no doubt learn a ton about the real-world atoms at play as they build this whole system out. I'm interested to hear how it advances as they grow and if they can incentivize the halt of the 15% or more of the U.S.'s methane footprint that comes from landfills. If they can do so, they can make a real difference on the climate front. Adam, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Cody. So there's so much I want to touch on. I don't think we've had anyone on the pod talk about the phenomenon of landfill methane and you know what that means from a climate footprint perspective. But before we go into that, I need to understand how you went from working on submarines to working on landfill-based climate change problems and Bitcoin mines. So sorry for the super, like, let's just jump right in direct question, but help us catch up to where we are today and how we got here with your personal journey. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is mechanical engineering, specifically from an oceans perspective. So I was the founder and CEO of a company called Deep Flight. We built high-performance submersibles for recreation and tourism, but also to spread awareness of ocean conservation projects. So my grandfather actually was the co-founder of an ocean nonprofit called the Oceanic Society. So climate activism and just climate issues in general have always been part of my upbringing. I grew up in San Francisco and the North Bay. So 
I've always been connected through my family to climate issues and very much so through deep flight as well. I got into Bitcoin in 2017 and as an engineer, but also as a a liberal and somebody that cares about the climate, I've understood the social aspects of having a decentralized currency that can, you know, remove the need to have a central bank and what these things can bring to society. But I've also taken sort of an engineer's approach at looking at the energy consumption and how we can utilize that energy consumption for good. And so that's kind of how Vespian Energy was born, which was, you know, utilizing Bitcoin and other high energy data applications to solve a a real world problem. Fantastic. We're going to have so much to dive into on the Bitcoin side of things. You sort of frame it as a foregone conclusion in your mind that it is a you know positive climate solution. And I, I can guarantee you there are many listeners here who that is not how they would think about Bitcoin. And so we're not going to have today's whole recording be about Bitcoin, but we're definitely going to dive into that side of the, the conversation for sure. But let's first start with the problem you identified in terms of access to energy that could power these these mines. And before we even get into how they might power the mines, let's talk about the problem itself. And so, as I understand it, landfill methane today, so basically the gas that is coming off of junkyards, right, landfills, is responsible for a significant amount of the overall methane footprint, which as I think most people listening to this have done enough homework to understand that methane itself is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas, much more potent in the short term than carbon dioxide is in terms of its heat trapping capacity. So maybe I will now quit pretending like I'm the expert here because you you are an expert in this area and maybe walk us through the overall problem set of methane in landfills today and why so far at least very little has been done to solve that problem. Yeah, I know it's important to understand the context. So we look at landfills as a major contributor to climate change through methane emissions. So the EPA estimates that landfills contribute about 17% of all U.S. methane emissions. But there's been various studies. NASA participated in a study that actually showed that those numbers were potentially underreported by a factor of 2 to 3x which makes landfills one of the biggest, if not the biggest methane emitter in the United States. And what is that compared to like the other top emitters? I assume oil and gas wells are the biggest. So oil and gas and agricultural sources. So agricultural meaning basically cow burps and as well as cow manure management or livestock manure are both big emitters. But, you know, because the EPA data is all based on self-reported data from landfills themselves, there is a significant opportunity for under-reporting of data. And with oil and gas, we know, for example, there are EPA requirements that they are supposed to be doing something about this methane. We know a lot of them leak and, you know, are flaring, which is imperfect. With landfills, are they just like open to the air today? Like, what is the situation? Nope. So there are definitely EPA regulations around landfills, for sure. So taking a step back for a moment, you know, there's basically two forms of project, two types of projects that are typically run on landfills in terms of beneficial utilization of this biomethane. So the first is you build a power plant and then you sell those electrons to the grid. The second is you build a a gas refinery. So you're actually building a, they call it 
renewable natural gas or RNG. And so you're refining that, that landfill gas, which has a lot of pollutants and a lot of other constituents. You're refining that into pipeline quality, and then you're either injecting it into the pipeline or you're marketing it in some other fashion, whether it be compressed natural gas for vehicle fuel or even LNG or liquefied natural gas. And so the problem with these two project types is that they're very capital intensive and very infrastructure dependent. Basically, you have a product, whether it's electrons or molecules, and your your end user of that product is somewhere far away from the landfill. So you need to either inject those that gas into a pipeline to transport it to the end user, or you're building out infrastructure like power lines to essentially sell that electricity to the end user. And because of that, these projects only really work, or, or what, I, what we say, pencil out. They only really pencil out for larger landfills that have enough gas production to warrant the additional infrastructure cost or are located in a proximity very close to existing infrastructure. So I guess put simply, just to make sure I understood that, put simply, landfills typically don't live next to either a natural gas pipeline or don't live next to large-scale energy transmission lines that connect to the grid. Therefore, if you are processing the methane byproduct into either usable gas or combusting it into energy, you don't have anywhere to send it today. That's right. You do, but in order to send it, you need to build out that additional infrastructure. So if you have, let's say you have a site and it's 10 miles away from a natural gas pipeline, then you need to factor in that 10 miles of pipeline in order to actually get your product to a market, right? And most landfills today are in municipal areas or close by them. Is that is that a correct assumption? Most landfills are in very kind of rural areas. So oh, they, they are. are they are okay. in in proximity to population centers, but still fairly far out. Right. I mean, some landfills, there's a lot of closed landfills that are in urban centers because they back in the day, you would have your landfill right there. But a lot of landfills are, are fairly remote and decentralized. So I guess put into context, there's about 3000 municipal solid waste landfills in the United States. Only about 500 of those landfills have active projects on them. And when I say active project, I mean either a power plant or a gas refinery. Right. So that leaves a large, you know, 2500 landfills who have no no use case for their and for their methane. And some of those landfills are regulated. So regular regulation actually goes into the individual states. The EPA has a set of standards that says landfills of a certain size have to install gas capture and control systems to actually destroy that methane or flare the methane. But they basically put the onus on the individual states to regulate that. Right. So that means that of those 2,500 landfills that don't have active projects, only about 30% of those are, are flaring it. So that means they're, they're capturing the methane and they're burning it off. Right. So that's at least benefiting the environment because they're not emitting methane. Methane is anywhere from 80 to it's 80 times worse than CO2 in a 20 year period. You know, if you consider it a hundred year period, it's like 25 X. Any way you shake a stick at it, methane is a, is a horrible greenhouse gas. But the vast majority of those landfills, so 70% of those 2,500 are actually just emitting it. That's mostly because they're either too small to fit the EPA's thresholds. The EPA has a certain threshold for landfills to capture and destroy their gas. Or they, in a lot of cases, and this is something that we've uncovered through our company, is that 
landfill operators are actually strategically underreporting their emissions in order to get underneath the threshold that they would be required to then install these capture systems. And so there's a threshold at which they have to basically absorb a ton of capex to put these capture and, and flaring systems in place. Are there fines and fees for not complying here? I have heard that in the oil, you know, oil and gas world, sometimes it's actually cheaper to just pay the fine than it is to install all the appropriate leak mitigation technologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the basic penalty, I guess you can say, is that they lose their operating permit. And so they're not able to you know, operate as a landfill anymore. But you know, the, the time frame on these things is very, very long. So you have to test for your emissions every five years. Once you've reached a certain threshold, you, they give you another 30 months to install your system. So these are very long timeframes and we don't have that much time, right? The climate doesn't have that much time. And so this is where Vespine Energy comes in is that we provide a third alternative. So essentially what we do is we build what we call self-sustaining microgrids onto landfills and other wastewater treatment plants and other sources of biogenic methane emissions. A self-sustaining microgrid is essentially, or at its core, it's a turbine-based biogas to energy project that's co-located with interruptible data processing, most notably Bitcoin mining. And so in this way, we're able to bring the user of the energy onto the site rather than exporting the energy to the user. And so in other words, we're able to monetize data rather than electrons or molecules, right? And now this sort of unlocks a number of different attributes. So firstly, we're able to now, because we don't have that additional infrastructure cost, we can now profitably develop sites that were once too small to be targets for traditional developments, right? And so by now putting a, a financial value to this waste gas, we're able to basically provide a carrot as opposed to the EPA or regulation stick, right? So if if you imagine the regulator is making you test for your emissions every five years and now is forcing you to comply for these various things, we instead provide a financial incentive to mitigate that methane. And the reason that's important is because, you know, we look at methane not only is it, of course, it's not just a US problem, it's a global problem. And there are many countries in the world that have little to no regulation around their landfill gas. And so if we can provide a non-governmental incentive to capture and destruction of landfill gas, then that's going to be able to scale globally. Great. Two clarifying questions of things you mentioned. One is you used the phrase biogas. We talked about methane. Just make sure for everyone listening and for my own education, you can define what biogas is. I presume it is the output of methane from a biological method like a landfill or the sludge left over in our sewer systems and bacteria that are eating it away and releasing methane. Is that generally correct? Yep. Biogas is basically just another word for biogenic methane. So biogas does have other gases in it. So generally, you know, when you say biogas, it includes it's a uh, you know generally around fifty to sixty percent methane. The rest is nitrogen, oxygen, CO two, and then other types of contaminants like hydrogen sulfide and other things like siloxanes and other types of VOCs. And so, another cool thing about our process is that 
in addition to mitigating the methane emissions, we're also mitigating the emissions of those other constituents. And so generally when people think about climate change, you know, you're thinking about global warming and, and methane is a, is a big part of that. But in terms of kind of things like local air quality and local pollutants, things like hydrogen sulfide, VOCs, NOx, these are things that make a big impact on air pollution, smog, local health, air quality. And these are all things that we also mitigate the release of during our process. And then the, the second clarifying question was around the commercial nature of these landfills in the first place. You mentioned a number of them are quite small, et cetera. Are these municipally owned typically, or are they typically private enterprises? Yeah, I mean, in the United States, landfills are split up about 50-50 in terms of municipally owned and privately owned. But even if it's a privately owned landfill, generally speaking, the ultimate beneficiary of a landfill is going to be a community of some kind. Because we're talking about when we say landfill, we actually mean municipal solid waste landfill. And so these are basically where your trash goes to rest, right? And there's a number of really great programs happening throughout the country in terms of trying to divert organic waste away from landfills, whether it be through organics, composting, or other types of programs. One interesting thing or key part of our technology is that not only do we populate and be, are able to develop active landfills, but we can also profitably capture methane from closed landfills. And when, you know, when a landfill closes, which means it's not receiving any more trash, that landfill is still going to be producing methane for, for decades after. So 40, 50, even 60 years worth of gas that needs to be mitigated. And so, you know, rather than putting that expense onto a community to pay for the, you know, the operations and maintenance of the flare infrastructure, again, we're able to come in and place financial value to that waste stream and provide a revenue stream back to communities, which can then be used for, you know, social programs or whatever else the community decides to do with that revenue. So if I then understand the high level framing here, it's, hey, we can go and help these, in many cases, municipally owned landfills, or if not municipally owned, they're they're privately owned, but they are very much core to the fabric of a given city or metro area. And you can walk into these places and say, hey, you know, this methane thing that is causing climate change and that is a real problem you have, but is expensive for you to deal with it. We can come in and not only remove the expense of dealing with it, but actually give you a, a potential profit center, you know, without you having to necessarily do all that much. And as part of that, you're going to have on-site energy that can be used around your landfill in a way that you otherwise don't have access to today. Is that like, am I understanding the Vespine pitch at like the highest of levels? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, our pitch is essentially speaking, we're helping landfills turn a liability into an asset, right? So again, we're targeting the spaces or the, the sites that are generally speaking, overlooked by traditional developments. And so again, because of the infrastructure requirements, a lot of these sites have no way of traditionally speaking, no way of monetizing that gas because there's no there's no developer that wants to come in and buy it because they can't get a return on investment on whatever you know system they're trying to sell that product into. Right. And so now the landfills that we're talking to, they either have a financial liability in the sense that 
They are required to, by the EPA, to install capture and flaring infrastructure, which is a large capex on the front end, and then an ongoing opex basically into infinity, or they have an environmental liability. And the environmental liability is the methane that is being generated by their landfill. But not only does the municipality have that environmental liability, you know, the whole world has that environmental liability. And so every site that we're able to populate makes a marked reduction in methane emissions, which the UN in 2021, and I think it was during the Glasgow conference, basically stipulated that reduction, immediate reduction in landfill emissions is by far the most powerful lever that we have as humanity to reduce the intensity of climate change. So super helpful. And that helps me understand a huge sort of setup on the supply side of the business that you're building, where this power comes from and why there's a problem today that both prevents that latent power from being harnessed, which is basically that, you know, connecting these landfill sources to the grid or to a gas pipeline is is extremely expensive. And, you know, helps me understand how you're able to provide an economic incentive to the owners of these landfills to have you come in and work with them. Let's shift to the demand side, which to me is the whole Bitcoin ecosystem. Bitcoin is a very complicated world in climate circles, as I'm sure you know better than me. My understanding is the proponents of Bitcoin as a climate-oriented solution will say that look, Bitcoin is essentially the world's first currency that's backed by energy or backed by compute power, right? Like what makes Bitcoin fungible is the fact that it is expensive from an energy perspective to secure the network, that the computations that are running aren't necessarily individual transactions. They are the regular security mechanism around the network that makes it hard to crack, which allows it to be trustless. It allows no government to control the ledger because the ledger is expensive. You can't attack it with a bunch of computers because it would cost too much energy to do so for any one party necessarily. Like I'm sure I'm butchering that argument, but like that's my general understanding. I think the argument of Bitcoin as a problem from a climate perspective is the same thing. It uses a lot of energy. And in order to use that energy today, because we don't have pervasive renewable energy all around the world, it's doing things like slowing the retirement of coal plants, which are being kept online to power Bitcoin mines, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm really interested to hear you explain the demand side of of what you're building, which is taking this energy and moving it into the Bitcoin system, into the Bitcoin network as a climate solution and, and sort of how you think about that. Absolutely. We try not to get too involved in the philosophical discussion of Bitcoin because there certainly are going to be people that are anti-Bitcoin. They don't see the value. They don't understand the value of, of Bitcoin. And if somebody has that, that viewpoint, you know, kind of any energy consumption by Bitcoin, no matter how small, is always going to be bad, right? Because you, if you don't understand the philosophical reason for Bitcoin, you're always going to think that it's going to be bad if it, it consumes energy. I think the other important thing to look at is there's a difference between energy consumption and emissions, because Bitcoin generally gets vilified by saying it has the same energy consumption as some countries, right? Like Argentina, or I'm not sure which countries are are the latest ones that people are comparing to. But 
I think what's not compared to is the emissions profile, right? And so the other thing I think to understand is that, you know, Bitcoin has some really interesting properties. And the main interesting one is that it doesn't matter kind of where on earth the mining is done. And I think firstly, it's it's important for people to understand it's mining is really the, the wrong word for it. You know, mining kind of conjures up these images of dirty people in coal mines with pickaxes, right? Really, it's, you know, what a miner is, is a decentralized auditor, essentially, of the Bitcoin network. And what Bitcoin mining is, is, is essentially data processing. And so, you know, when you frame it in that perspective, it's a little, firstly, it's a little bit easier to understand and sort of relate to. But then also, you know, so it has this magic property that you can you can operate a, a Bitcoin data center anywhere on Earth where there's energy because you can send that data via satellite. You don't need a, a connection or grid connection to do it. So Bitcoin is sort of uniquely able to scalably populate these areas, these pockets of, of stranded or wasted energy. And in our case, that energy just happens to be methane and methane, as we know, is a powerful greenhouse gas. For every, let's say, ton of methane that I combust, I've basically prevented the equivalent of 25 tons of CO2 to go into the atmosphere. And so therefore, from a, we call that CO2E or CO2 equivalency. And so from a CO2E perspective, what we've done there is actually become carbon negative. And so over time, as more companies like us come online, and as grid, let's say grid power or, or normal energy becomes more and more expensive, then miners are just going to, by nature of the beast, they're going to be migrating more and more towards these cheaper energy sources and cheaper energy sources just happen to be cleaner and ours happens to be carbon negative. So we do believe that in several years time, the Bitcoin network will become from a carbon equivalency perspective, carbon neutral or even carbon negative, which is a really interesting perspective. I think one thing that I did want to mention, though, that's important in terms of Vespian's development is that we're, we're actually not really a Bitcoin miner, per se. You can look at Vespian in a number of different ways. I think you know we're primarily a methane mitigation company, but also a renewable energy developer. But we use Bitcoin mining essentially as a tool, right? We use it as a tool to set up these self-sustaining microgrids. And once that microgrid is set up and you're firstly, you're mitigating your methane and you're being provided with financial remuneration. So we call it, we would consider that basically a base camp. So if, you know, if renewable energy development is a mountain that we've just set up a base camp. So we've prevented the release of that methane and we were able to sustain ourselves in a financially beneficial way. And then over time, we can integrate other use cases for that energy. And the main one is electric vehicle charging. So obviously, as time goes on, there's more and more adoption of electric vehicles. You know, California recently banned the sale of new gas vehicles, I think by 2035. So there's going to be a massive or there is a massive push to electrification. And so landfills are actually going to play a very important role in that electrification because you know, landfills, if you think of a landfill, there's a ton of different vehicles that are interacting with that landfill. So primarily with trash collection fleets, there's a, a big movement within the landfill community to electrify fleets, right? And generally speaking, if I wanted to electrify my fleet, I would have to contact my 
local utility, have them build out high power charging electrification out to the site. I would then have to, and then I would have to size that that investment to be exactly, you know, how many trucks I'm going to be charging at the apex of my of my electrification. So what we allow landfills to do is actually electrify at their speed. Because we have this data processing load kind of operating in the background, we think of that as sort of like a, it's an energy ballast. So any unused energy is always getting monetized. And so let's say day one, you say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to have a pilot program or I'm going to put in one charging kiosk and charge one truck. Great. Well, we siphon off as much energy as that truck needs to charge and the rest of it gets eaten up by the data load. And then over time you can build on that. And so basically that base camp model allows, allows that electrification to commence at the speed that the landfill wants to and doesn't require any additional infrastructure or input from the local utility. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. Super helpful. And there are two directions I want to go with this. One is making sure I understand how you go from A to B to C and sort of building out using Bitcoin data centers are actually kind of, if I understand it, because the nature of Bitcoin is such that there is no, other than getting the, the machines there in the first place, there's not necessarily a logistics play that's involved with Bitcoin in that you don't have to transport the electrons or transport anything anywhere. As long as you're, you're connected to the internet, once you've processed the energy on site, converted it to Bitcoin and are basically using your facility to be a Bitcoin node, you can do that anywhere in the world. And so every other use case you mentioned had some real world physical limitation to it, whereas this allows you to very quickly and easily do it and to do it at fairly subscale if you need to, to start, because you can continue to add compute power to your local node, and then you can add other nodes around the world, but they don't it doesn't matter how close they are to each other, really, other than, again, that initial build out of getting the machines there and just your operational overhead of, of running all these That's places. Right. The other thing that that does, though, is that it allows. So that means that your data, the data on my site that I'm processing is what we call not mission critical. So that means I can basically the only thing that happens when I, let's say, turn off my Bitcoin server is that I'm losing revenue, right? There's no customer that cares if their you know, Netflix show went down or their website 
wasn't hosted anymore. So they, these are these are yeah, examples. Or their, of, their hospital equipment doesn't work. Right? Right, I mean, yeah, exactly. Go to much more extreme oh, use yeah. cases, right? Yeah, one hundred percent. And so what that means is that we can sort of actively dial up or dial down very scalably to accommodate these other these other on-site use cases, whether it be electric vehicle charging. So again, you think of it as the concept of self-sustaining microgrid. A microgrid can support any number of different electric you know, consumers of electricity. So the primary ones that we're actively pursuing are charging, but also 5G. So cell phone towers, like especially 5G, are actually fairly energy intensive. And it also just so happens that the communities that need access to higher connectivity are the ones that where landfills are located, right? So landfills are in sort of rural areas. And, you know, we believe in sort of helping to benefit those communities, whether it be by, you know, that charging infrastructure or the 5G infrastructure. And then there's like a number of other use cases that we can get into, including ultimately grid connection. There are going to be sites that over time that make sense because of the way the population is building out or the way that energy prices become, that it will ultimately potentially make sense to connect some of those sites to the grid. The reason why you wouldn't do that in the first place is, you know, it can take many years to get a interconnect agreement put in place. And then generally speaking, a, you know, wholesale electricity sales can be quite low margin. And so because we've essentially amortize the cost of all of our equipment by virtue of the either the Bitcoin mining or the data center application, we can now accept a lower margin, you know, activity for a much longer time period. So super helpful. And and actually the second question I, I was going to ask, I think actually kind of builds on this, which is what I'm hearing you say is Bitcoin serves at least initially almost as a bootstrap because there's almost it doesn't matter how much or how little power you have you can kind of grow with the size of the network. One thing I think we didn't mention about biogas is just the nature of it is that it's always on. So un- unlike other sort of semi-renewable forms of energy, there's no intermittency to this, right? It's producing methane all 24 hours a day, I'm guessing. And so it's, you know, it's always on for you to control. So the question I have is one of, when it comes to Bitcoin, is one of the perverse incentive question, which is, as it gets more and more profitable, yeah, all these other use cases are imaginable, right? You could power the EVs of the garbage trucks that are coming to and from the landfill sites. You have these hubs, presumably that are highway connected that, you know, could even be stopover hubs for, I assume, medium and long haul trucking that are EVs that are going to need a place to stop and charge. But the net per electron profitability question is going to come into play, which is, is it more profitable for you to do those things? Or is it more profitable to mine Bitcoin? And I think it's that same perverse incentive that I know a lot of people get concerned about with climate and Bitcoin as well that I mentioned earlier, which is a coal plant that's scheduled to be shut down, but then a Bitcoin you know, mining company scoops in and buys it and keeps it up and running. That's a one-off use case in my mind that like should be prevented with good regulation, but we know good regulation doesn't always happen in the United States, sadly, depending on the location. But how do you manage the, the sort of the perverse incentives of not just pouring everything into Bitcoin all the time, or should you? I don't know. But, you know, it feels like if the idea is this broader sort of stranded energy asset that can be used for multiple use cases, if Bitcoin is trading at hundreds of thousands of dollars per coin someday, it would seem to me, you know, your sites are going to be 100% mining Bitcoin all the time. No, so you bring up a really great question. And I think the important thing to understand is that Bitcoin mining is actually a very low margin business. It's potentially higher margin than, let's say, wholesale electricity sales. 
but it's low margin in comparison to let's say you know ev charging even the cheapest ev charging is by and large like i would a hundred percent gladly if you said hey like i want to or do you want to do Bitcoin mining at this site? Or do you want to 100% charge vehicles all the time? Like I would say charge vehicles. <laughs> yeah, electric vehicle charging is more profitable for a per kilowatt hour basis than Bitcoin mining like will ever be, right? And so it's not really a question of profitability. It's more a question of scalability, right? So Bitcoin mining is really the, it's the only thing that you can take without needing a like a customer or any other type of infrastructure development that you can now kind of populate these these sites kind of at scale, right? So it really is sort of the ultimate bootstrap, like as it's, I was yeah, saying. Yeah, no, it's because... absolutely the ultimate bootstrap. But I think it's it's important to note that over time, if you sort of dig a little bit deeper into, into Bitcoin, you'll understand that like the concept of the halving, which happens essentially every four years, the protocol or the network essentially cuts in half your reward as a miner. And so the more miners that come online and the more powerful the machines become, like Bitcoin mining is becoming a lower and lower margin activity. And so therefore it's always, it's important for us as a company to kind of view Bitcoin mining as that bootstrap base camp application, and then bring in these other applications with a much more stable cash flow for the long term. Let me understand more on the on the mining side of profitability. You know, we're currently we, we would quote in a bear market for crypto, even though today prices of Bitcoin are what was an all time high price. I don't even know three years ago or something like that. Not even that long ago, I don't think we're recording in October. And I guess Bitcoin prices are hovering around nineteen thousand dollars a Bitcoin. Help me understand what does profitability from a mining perspective look like? We could spend, I'm sure, hours on this, but just to help our listeners understand, you know, get at least a baseline of knowledge in this regard. And and I don't know a ton about this. It has something to do with how modern your machines are, how you've financed them, all sorts of intangibles, I'm sure, that matter in this in this regard. Yeah, I mean, we could definitely dig in super deep on the kind of the mining economics. But I think the important thing to understand is that as a miner, the amount that you're earning from a transaction or from your activities as a miner are dependent not only on the price of Bitcoin, but also the number of my other miners that are on the network. And so generally speaking, in because Bitcoin itself as an asset is a volatile asset, your profitability is also going to be volatile over time, right? So it's important when you're when you're modeling it, it's important to be conservative in terms of and and actually and also have access to very low cost of, of power. And I think by definition, using essentially waste methane is sort of by definition going to be a an inexpensive form of energy. And so, you know, I think it's you know it's important to understand that it is going to be volatile over the over the long term. And so that's why it's important to layer in these other use cases and also hedges against Bitcoin to provide, you know, a diversity of different revenue streams. Got it. So again, back to the original supply side of, of your business, which is the actual, you know, landfills themselves, you know, it's going to these operators and saying, hey, we, we've got this way for you to earn some money. It's going to be volatile we're going to give you a profit share on this that's going to fluctuate. But right now, this is all cost for you. So, hey, we're turning some cost into into upside. And then are you holding the Bitcoin on your balance sheet? Are you selling it? Like, what does the Vespine business model from that perspective look like? 
you know, look, we're still a young company and we're much more focused on growth and expansion. So in general, you know, we're going to be leveraging or utilizing whatever revenues that we have to come back into the business and, and expand. There's a big opportunity in landfills, not only in the United States, but also worldwide, wastewater treatment, other methane sources, you know, the, the wide, wide world of wasted methane opportunities. And I'll speak briefly about where we are as a company. You know, we have a pilot site under construction currently in central California. This will be about one and a half megawatts which would be considered kind of a smaller on the smaller side of landfill, you know, generally that size of site and given its proximity is, is sort of not a target again for these traditional developers. And then in addition to that, we have another 10 sites that are currently in our kind of active pipeline that are going to be coming online within the next kind of year to 18 months. And then one other just sort of technical question about these sites and what you're you're getting out of them. What's the general sort of BTU content look like coming out of these sites? Is there enough pressure to like really drive on-site use cases? Just, I mean, I'm definitely not a methane expert or a, you know, a gas expert, but it feels like these are the kind of questions that come up around gas power plants. So just making sure I, I understand that. Yeah, typically, so landfill gas to energy or landfill gas to electricity is a fairly well understood technology. You know, there's there's a number of sites across the country that are active power plants where they're, you know, combusting landfill gas and sending that energy to the grid. Generally what happens on a technical level is that you have you have basically a vacuum system that's kind of pulling a vacuum on the landfill. The landfill has a series of piping and wells that are dug into the landfill. And that gas basically comes out under under vacuum. And then when you use a turbine-based approach like we do, we're actually compressing that gas. So firstly, we're filtering the gas. We're cleaning the gas, cleaning out the the contaminants like the H2S and the siloxanes, et cetera. And then we're compressing the gas and feeding that into a micro turbine. And a micro turbine is essentially a, it's a fancy generator that combusts the gas in sort of the cleanest possible way and then creates electricity. And so, you know, from a, an engineering perspective, all of the challenges in terms of getting landfill gas out of the landfill and into a combustion chamber. Those are all very well understood projects where, where we come in is, is adding on that Bitcoin layer, that Bitcoin mining layer, and then allowing that Bitcoin mining to facilitate by sort of scaling up and down to facilitate these other onsite uses. Awesome, Adam. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time to explain all this. And, you know, I've spent a little bit of time in this space because as I think listeners know, we've had Chase Lockmiller from Crusoe Energy on the show before at MCJ, we're, we're investors in Crusoe. So we have a bit of an understanding of the model and, and sort of the climate impact as we view it, but that's focused on gas flaring from, from oil wells that are essentially stranded, whereas doing this on landfills and with biogas, that is is a completely different source of energy. And so interesting to hear how you sort of view that. And I guess that's the, the last question I would have for you on the overall business is the geographic nature of these landfills, presumably, you believe, afford some degree of future economic benefit. And I'm curious, maybe it's the EV charging use case we talked about, but I'm, I'm curious what you think the, the benefit of this being a highly distributed system across the United States provides for your business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, firstly, Chase and, and the whole team of Crusoe are, are good friends of ours, and they're pioneers in the in the space. I think there's a couple of key differences, I think, between oil and gas, flare gas mitigation, and comparing that with landfills. I think, firstly, landfills are going to require 
somewhat more capital to actually build out because you need to have that gas purification step. You need to filter out those contaminants, which are generally not not in place, certainly to the same extent in, in oil fields. But I think the thing that you gain on the landfill is both the proximity, relative proximity to population centers that opens up these other use cases, but also the length of time that that landfill is going to be producing methane, right? And so, you know, I think that because in, a, in an oil field application, your natural gas or your methane is basically a byproduct of the oil exploration. And so once that oil is basically removed or sucked out, that the natural gas production is basically going to taper down. It's actually the opposite in landfill. Landfill is actually increasing in gas production over time. As that landfill takes in more and more trash, the landfill is going to be increasing in gas production. And so as long as a landfill is open and these landfills can be open 100 years, potentially, so it's a very long-term play. And we believe that the future of energy is electric and it's important to balance other forms of renewables, such as wind and solar, which are not baseload, they're intermittent. It's important to balance that with, with baseload. And by leveraging this decentralized network of landfills, you know, smaller decentralized landfills, we can actually make a, you know, in aggregate, we can make a significant impact on electrification in general. And whether it be from a vehicle charging perspective or a grid connection perspective, or even a decentralized data processing perspective, every little bit helps. And I guess, Adam, if listeners don't believe you or don't believe me for having you on here as a potential climate solution, maybe you can describe the paper that the White House recently published. Yeah, well, so the White House actually, it was the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. They published a report on cryptocurrency mining and its energy usage. And I think the report was and again, I don't want to get into politics about sources of information, but in general, you know, it says, yes, Bitcoin mining is an energy intensive process and we need to be careful about the emissions profile. But it did mention specifically that in certain applications and methane mitigation applications that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency mining can be used to further the Biden administration's goals of decarbonization. And they mentioned landfills specifically by name. So that was fairly exciting to us that you know the White House is actually mentioning our business model as a potential climate solution. This is exciting for us in a way for us to further develop the business and potentially scale out even more quickly. Fantastic. And on that note, you all recently announced a, a seed funding round. Maybe share a little bit about how that's going and kind of what you view the future of the business looking like from a financial perspective in terms of capital needs. Yeah, so we closed a seed round with Polychain Capital being our, our lead investor, but we also had several climate-focused smaller groups as well as angel investors. The purpose of that was to facilitate standing up the pilot site, but because we're getting a lot of traction, we'll be kind of pivoting into a, a Series A fairly quickly. We also capitalize each individual site on sort of a project finance basis. So, you know, we're not actually using company funds to 100% capitalize every site. We basically bring in outside investors to take positions, equity positions in each site so they can benefit from the site-by-site -site economics. I'm curious who is funding the build-out of the sites. Are these typically debt investors who are typically funding landfill build-outs? Are they investors that work in biogas already and are looking for alternative solutions. I'm curious, kind of without revealing, you know, the secret sauce about where your capital is coming from, you know, what pools of capital are interested in this? Yeah, that's a great question. Our capital reach, I think, is fairly diverse because we're able to kind of stand at the intersection of 
cryptocurrency, as well as climate and methane mitigation and renewable energy development. And so we're able to kind of draw capital from a variety of different pools. I think primarily so far, we've been drawing capital primarily from climate and crypto focused investors. But over time, we also want to get in more into the energy capital mix. How are you finding pools of capital today on the infrastructure build outside? Are you currently starting to attract traditional infrastructure dollars that would invest in a landfill project or in a natural gas project? Or is that sort of what you hope to grow into in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, you know, because of the nature of our business, you know, we stand kind of right at the intersection of cryptocurrency, climate, and renewable energy. And so we've been able to draw capital from a variety of different groups. Currently, most of our capital is coming from the crypto world as well as the climate world. And so in terms of accessing you know, dollars from more traditional energy project developers, we're actively sort of engaging in conversations around that. But we have some fairly big players that are interested in us as soon as we can sort of prove out our, our viability from a, a pilot perspective. And so we'll be able to generally it's like, you know, the proof is in the pudding, you know, you got to get the steel in the ground. And so having our, our pilot project under construction right now, as well as these other projects that are in the pipeline are very helpful in that. But, you know, as soon as we as soon as we get that project up and running, which should be end of this year, kind of early next year, we'll be able to start accessing additional capital, whether it be debt or, or equity based. Excellent, Adam. And for people listening who are interested in what you're building, you're, you're working at the intersection of projects that I know a lot of folks who work in both tech and in climate have a keen interest in. So where are you needing help right now? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think firstly, we're very open book, our company in terms of collaboration and sort of joint ventures and things of this nature. And so feel free to reach out and contact me. I'm at digital underscore or on Twitter, O-R-E, or you can just hit us up at vespine.energy. In terms of where we're kind of focused on mostly, we're still very small and nimble. We have a small team and we're mostly essentially horizontally integrated in terms of utilizing subcontractors for most of our buildouts. But as we move forward, we're going to be bringing a lot of that in-house. So things like, you know, manufacturing of the gas treatment systems and some of the on-site engineering, we'll be able to do that in-house and, and help kind of on the CapEx margins. And then other than that, you know, understanding kind of regulatory frameworks and all of the different incentive programs that are offered by, there's a, a litany of different kind of, there's the IRA, there's the Build Back Better, there's like all kinds of different government programs that have potential for funding, whether it be grants or tax credits and things of this nature that we're going to be seeking to capitalize on. Well, I so appreciate you joining us today. And it was great hearing about your story and hearing your approach. And I can't wait to hear once the first site is up and running, how things are going. Yeah, awesome. Thanks a lot, Cody. It was a pleasure. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com 
And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode. Thanks.